Welcome to No Challenges Remaining here for the NCR Book Club, our first author chat on the book club with the author. Courtney's here, I'm here, Ben Rothenberg, and John Wertheim is here, author of Venus Envy, our first selection for the NCR Book Club. John, thank you for making time in this uh, crazy world to chat about this book, which I can tell from how we (laughs) our lead up that you're a little bit sheepish talking about, but we are big fans of this book, so thank you for agreeing to do this. I, uh, I, I appreciate that. We had to shuffle all sorts of Zoom calls. No, I, I, was, <laughs> I was saying I, was, uh, I would be embarrassed to talk about this book during peacetime conditions. I'm all the more, uh, I'm all the more sheepish to do this, uh, given circumstances that are uh, a, little, a little more dire than you know, Anna Kornikova's love life. But it's, it's nice to be here. Good talking to you guys. Nice, nice to talk about tennis. Uh, which um, has has been in short supply, of course, these last few weeks. Yeah, just I guess you've been. I've seen you a couple times on Tennis Channel right now. I mean, obviously, you know, it goes without saying this is a pretty unprecedented time in the sport. Just one quick question on that: just how how are you doing, and, and how do you think how do you think the sport is doing right now? I mean, obviously, it's sort of comatose, but yeah, what, what do you what do you make of it? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Not not how I'm I'm doing fine, like everyone else, and trying to just uh, make you know this is shocking to to all of us and uh those of us who have not yet come down with this thing i think i'll feel fortunate um i you know in in some ways the the big headline of course was the fft land grabbing but i think in other ways tennis has has been very familial and has sort of shown some of its nicer aspects i mean i think it's not a great surprise that there are there just as there are class distinctions and uh class aspects of the story in general i think we're seeing it in tennis and when you have uh, an, an academy and a home gym, you, you have earned those things. But, you know, I suspect the top players are processing this very differently than players who are, you know, ranked 50 and below and really have have some fairly existential concerns about their career, at least. But, um, I, you know, I, I just think it's strange. I mean, even when you have an injury, you at least have a rehab schedule. And if, if Stan stays on target, he can try to give it a go at the Australian Open, even if he's only going to be 80%. Yeah. Um, this this lack of any sort of timing is really jarring to to everyone, not least the players. I mean, how how hard do you train having no idea when it is you're actually going to be back there playing matches? Yeah, I'm curious if any of them, and if they'll admit this afterwards, just like have done nothing, have been just like pessimistic about the timeline, just say I'm just going to you know drink beers and sit on my couch and play Red Dead Redemption and stalk Courtney on it or hey, whatever else you know they're what? doing. <laughs> Be cool. I mean, I did. Um, I talked. It's a great game. Um, I talked to Sam Sumick actually yesterday a little bit about this, and I asked him, you know, what is it like being a coach during the time of Corona, and and he just said, you know, my what he thinks. He's like, generally speaking, yeah, maybe there's like a small handful of players who are doing absolute jack squat, but he's like, I think everybody's like actually you know, doing as much as they possibly can to stay, you know, active and in shape and and as close to performance as they possibly can. They're just not telling each other that they're doing that. <laughs> um, that right. hyper competitiveness that goes into Venus Envy um, still lives on today in 2020. Um, but, uh, but go ahead, John. 
No, I thought there's, there was your segue. I know. <laughs> <laughs> masterful, masterful work from 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 Nguyen. Um, but yeah, no, and and um, but I, Sam said the exact same thing that you said, John, which is that it's just the fact that we don't know when things are going to resume. That 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 is what is so eerie about about everything right now, and and not being able to plan for anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the meantime, we have plenty of time to catch up on things we've all wanted to do in life in theory like watching tiger king or reading for the <laughs> fourth or fifth time uh, for me venus envy which so let's get back to the, your, your beginning chief in this john what what as before i get into this what makes you sort of cringe at the mention of this book as you already did in your mailbag a bit so i knew that reaction was coming <laughs> but uh when you mentioned the book club thank you for the for the plug there but what do you uh how do you look back on this book 20 years removed from it now um it was sort of a, a moment in time in a lot of ways um you know it was, it was a moment in time for women's tennis and women's sports you might say that the country at large it was also sort of i was a cub re- reporter at sports illustrated and women's tennis suddenly seemed to be um you know, picking up some traction, and that got the attention of of New York publishers and agents. And I, I, I can't even remember the specifics. I was trying to remember, but you know, it's the late '90s. I'm in my you know mid to late 20s, and I sort of get this call about would I be interested in writing a book on women's tennis. I had never done a book before, and it was um, it, it was a learning experience. It's uh, and, you know, start starting with the fact that I, I did not realize the publisher, at least when you're uh, you know. At, don't have a lot of leverage as I didn't. The publisher chooses the title. Ah, you know the the, the title ah. makes me recoil a bit. No, and I I you know and honestly I in retrospect it was it was a good reporting exercise. It was a I mean a lot of good came of it. I think you sort of learned about how to build relationships and build sources and not burn people. But you know it's it's probably not my proudest. It's very very gossipy and. Uh, I've written, um, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to write a number of books since then that I'm, you know, candidly probably more proud of. But uh, it was um, it was a rookie effort in uh, in every sense. But the depth of reporting, though, is really clear on it. And and a lot of times I mean, the amount of, you know, if you went through and counted how many people are are sources in this book, there would be definitely over 100. I mean, it's a lot of people, a lot of deep reporting. I mean, even like on something, you know, like you talk to Richard Williams's kids from his previous marriage like you did a lot of tracking down people for this book a lot of a lot of thorough reporting even if there is you know a lot of uh silliness and and gossip i guess in the book which was sort of of the time of, of how women's tennis when you have all these teen phenoms being uh dramatic and catfighty with each other but you still there is still i think a pretty clear thread of diligent reporting that goes throughout it that gives it a lot more heft than just that so I, at least I see that. I, right? no, I recognize I, I, that as a reporter. I, I appreciate it. that. I mean, this this was pre. This was sort of. I God, I'm, I sound like one of these. You know, you, you you really try not to date yourself and turn into one of these uh, these these rearview mirror types. But um, no, I mean, this was dawn of the internet. I mean, I remember they kept saying Anna Kournikova was the most downloaded athlete in the right. world, and I or, or the most downloaded woman, and Mother Teresa was second, and Hillary Clinton was third. <laughs> and not sure what, and you know, Anna Kornikova was worth eight figures because you had to account for her Lycos.com stock options. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a lot. Of, see, uh, that, is, that is of a time. <laughs> exactly. It was. It was very much of. A, it, it was very much of a time. It was pre. You know, I mean, the obvious one is it was pre-social media. But you know, honestly, it was also of a time when there was a lot less. And I think this is for better or worse. There was sort of a lot less professionalism to to tennis and to the WTA in particular. And part of that meant 
there was sort of this free for all in terms of media. There was um, th- there was not the collective maturity of the players, but there also wasn't the professionalization of things like the the tour and management groups. And it was just you'd go into the players' lounge, and it was just an absolute free for all. And you know, you had everybody's phone number, and if you wanted to talk to Richard Williams, you called up Richard Williams. It was. Um, very much a book of another time that yeah. I don't think, you know, you would, it'd be a much different book if you tried to do it today. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest question, I guess. And the overall theme of when I was like rereading it of just like, I I have, I think Venus Envy is probably the last book of this era of this time of reporting, right? Like that, that, you know, the, the, the Musha books and Feinstein and, and, uh, uh, you know, Pete Bodo's book, Courts of Babylon, all of that sort of stuff, like the insider, I say this as the WTA insider, uh, but the (laughs) true insider access, like, I just would read like page after page of this book and just be like, man, there's just, I mean, I can't even imagine how you get that information nowadays. Like, Uh no one's talking to anybody. No, but I think, so, so I always tell the story when Venus and Serena played each other in the final of Miami in 1999, I, I was there for Sports Illustrated, and I think I think the idea for this had already been sort of approached. So I was sort of thinking about whether this would have book possibilities. And you know, R- Richard Williams is everywhere, and they play in this historic final, and they get into a station wagon to pose with the trophy. And I asked the WTA if I can go, and I jump into the back of the station wagon yeah. with Venus and Serena as they go down the Rickenbacker Causeway at Key Biscayne to pose on the beach. Um, I don't see anyone doing that. I mean, it just, and I, I think part of this is about the growth of women's tennis. I mean, I, I have this discussion sometimes with Billie Jean King and it's all very collegial and we adore her. And sometimes she's, she says, you know, back in my day, we would all pile into the station wagons to go to the tournaments. We would have to hand out brochures. And now these women make millions of dollars. And I say, good, this is an earmark right. of progress. I mean, I'm happy that the WTA is in a place where, the two biggest stars win a tournament and people aren't mooching rides in the station wagon as they go post for the trip. I mean, there's a sort of level of, and you know, it's at the expense of access. And as a journalist, you, you never really like that. And I think sometimes you can go too far, but I think it's a real sign of growth that you don't have this sort of free for all the, you, you mentioned uh, tiger King, um, you know, <laughs> tiger King could not be made about the NFL. And I think in some ways it's a really uh, a a positive sign for the WTA that we're in a much different world from everyone, everyone for themselves. And uh, and anyone can walk into any, you know, there's there's no restricted access. And um, we've we've moved to a different world. How did how did you build up trust between yourself and these players and and also these families? Because, I mean, you are most of the protagonists of this book are in their teens. So how, how did you sort of as you were. Relative, you were younger then, obviously, and I felt this in the beginning of my reporting career, too. When I was closer in age to most of the players, it was sort of an advantage to be able to relate to them. But these are, you know, teenage girls you were talking to mostly from different backgrounds and stuff. And I'm, I'm just curious what the relationship building was like. And I guess you must have known them a bit. You've been on tour before that. But what it was like sort of getting that deeper access. I think one part you're in Slovakia with Martina Hingis in this book. I mean, like, what was it like you know, getting to know these players and building up sort of book level closeness with a lot of these different people when they're at the peak of their fame and their in their careers at the same time. Um, yeah, I, it's a good question. I mean, I think again, I you know, I show up at these events and you show up in in. I mean, you you have the same you you two have the same 
sort sort of relationship. I think that you know you show up at enough press conferences in Amelia Island or in yeah. uh, you know whatever Palo Alto or in San Diego, and people realize you're not just doing a, a parachute. You know, at the time, and it was the late '90s. Sports Illustrated was a huge deal, and honestly, I think just by dint of of Sports Illustrated, but I, I think the publishers. I wasn't approached because I was this dazzling tennis writer i think it was oh well he's the guy that writes about tennis for sports illustrated that must be our guy so i think sports illustrated was was a lot of cachet and with with the agents as well and i also think i really tried hard not to burn anyone so i would hear things that you know you could turn it around and, and get a lot of clicks and do a web column um i i tried you know i protected my sources and i didn't write anything until the book came out yeah. So I, I think that that helped as well. But again, it was just such a smaller it was just such a smaller ecosystem at the time that you would bump into these players in hotel lobby. You would share cars to the site. It was just such a smaller world that I think it was a lot easier for these relationships and this rapport to build because, you know, you you had Serena's phone number and you'd run into Richard Williams and you'd go out, you know, Mary Pierce would, Hey, what are you doing for dinner? Well, there's a place and you know, you'd have dinner with Mary Pierce and Charleston just because you two knew each other and it seemed like a normal thing to do. So, um, you know, I, I, I think I'd, I'd like to credit myself with all this uh, rapport building skills, but I think a lot of it again was just a function of function of the times. Yeah. When you talk about those things that you're nervous about burning people with, were there are there things that you remember specifically about revelations or quotes or something in the in the book that you were thought would be especially explosive? If you can remember back to those, I, I mean, the ones that come to mind for me are like the Richard Williams stuff that you have all of his background and sort of calling out a lot of his lying, honestly, for lack of a better word, or just how loose he was with the truth, but while also paying paying him due praise for the results he got. But I'm, I'm just if was that something you were thinking of, or, or what was it? that you were most sort of nervous of not burning until it was time to come. And what did you see as the most sort of flammable things in the book? Oh man, I, I, I should have reread the book in, uh, in <laughs> preparation for this. I know. I mean, some of it was that, yeah, some of, you know, Monica Sellis. I mean, some of it was just, um, people were very candid and I appreciated that and tried to respect that. Some of it was just sort of gossipy. I, I can't even remember I'm embarrassed to say I don't even remember if this made the book, but you know there was some crazy story about Kornikova in Scottsdale, where both her Russian hockey player suitors. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I, just tweeted, I, just, I just I just tweeted out that excerpt actually as I was rereading it because it was spectacular. Yeah, where Fedorov shows up with like a dozen bouquets, like a dozen ro- or like some certain number of roses to like after Burry had proposed, and Davenport's there watching this happen. <laughs> <laughs> both both hockey players, and those are like big star players too. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you you have Anna Kornikova. P- picture the scene here. Now, now that the statue <laughs> of limitations is off, uh, I, I can I can rope my friend LD into this too. But the um, you know this is as big an athlete, and I, I think we we should talk about this too. I mean, you know whether it's women's tennis or Anna Kornikova, this was really a moment in time for all of women's sports. But Anna Kornikova is this subject of immense fascination beyond tennis. And she's playing this small event in Scottsdale. And two of the biggest stars in the NHL in the middle of the season both converge on Scottsdale to try and win her. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm imagining. Oh, man. I can't believe I put that in the book. But as long as, it, as, long as I did it, it's been 20 years ago. I'm imagining so someone as, as sort of cool and rational and straight laced as you know, Lindsay is sitting there and she's in the lobby or whatever. And wait, wait a second. I just saw the other NHL all star here the other night. Um, it was a um, 
it, it was a bizarre scene that I, I guess I did put in the book, but I, I did not write about it uh, the minute I heard about it, which, um, you know, I suppose in another... Took some restraint, yeah. It been, been a bit of temptation. But no, I mean, I think it's important. This was, you know, the, the year 2000 was the the year that was showcased. And keep it, I mean, it's a year after the Women's World Cup. This is the dawn of the internet. Women's sports are finding traction. It's, you know, sports Illustrated has a whole separate Sports Illustrated for women. ESPN is in women's sports. And it's also an interesting time because men's tennis is not particularly this is pre-Federer and you, you sort of have Sampras and Agassi but they're both getting on and uh, that storyline to some extent had been played out so I think women's tennis really was the story within tennis it was really caught this women's sports buzz and I think it also was sort of very much in keeping with sort of where we were socially much, much broader than that so it, it was a strange moment of time and you had this impossibly rich cast I don't know if you did, did, did you guys see cheer I've not no, seen cheer not yet. no all right. So they sort of cherry pick this cast and everybody fills a role. And that's what you had at the time in women's tennis organically. So you had the these two sisters who just had a, had a backstory that was completely unprecedented. And you had Kornikova and you had, you know, Monica Sellis was the, the tragic figure and Steffi Groff was leaving. And you had Lindsay and Capriati and every week, you know, Mary Pierce wins the French Open and her return to France. I mean, it just you couldn't make this up. And you had this incredibly rich cast of characters and these really good players and there was a lot of friction and nobody was shy about the friction it really was very much a um a, a moment in time john how did you kind of go about in terms of like um just the process of okay i'm going i'm going to write this book uh that decision was made before the 2000 season or after uh, I'm trying to remember the, the timeline. I, b- before, I think I'd been before. approached in the summer of 1999. Okay, so then I guess my... Like, qu- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. So I guess my question is, uh, okay, you've kind of committed to this 2000 season, season to write about. Obviously, we can control many things, but we cannot control results. So as the season is unfolding, is you know, you have this title, Venus isn't even playing for the first few months of this of the year. Like... I could only imagine just from, I was thinking about it as I was reading, like putting myself in your shoes, like moments of maybe panic or like concern, like, is this season going to unfold in a way that is meaningful for me to write about? Like with due respect, if Conchita Martinez had won the French Open, like, what do you say about that? <laughs> we love the cheetah. Um, <laughs> the, the irony is just detour here. The, the irony is in 2007, I was approached about doing a, a book on Roger Federer, who in 2008, you know, as, as you recall, right. you know, lost in, lost in Australia and that this scrawny kid Djokovic won and he got his doors blown off in the French Open by Nadal. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to, you know, who, who wants a Roger Federer book when it looks like uh, his days are, are past? This was a little different because I think the publisher understood that half of this was really just about the cast of characters here. Gotcha. I, I guess you're right. I mean, I so I go to Australia. It was the first time I'd ever been there. And, you know, it, you, you didn't have Venus and Serena, which I think I was probably, from a narrative standpoint, rooting for. But it was a pretty cool story that amid all this chaos, you have level-headed Lindsay Davenport win the title. And this was someone who was, you know, I, I got on with um, immediately. She was She was very cool. She was very open. We had a relationship prior, so we knew each other a little bit. And, you know, I went with her as she 
She went down the Yarra in a boat, and the whole time she was muttering about how daring. I don't, I don't know. Did that make it in the book? It did. Too? It did. It did. It did. It's yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this thing is so cheesy, and uh, this was a part of the job I hate. Lindsay was great, and you know, remains great to this day. But Australia got off to a good start, and the the spring had um, you know your usual garden variety craziness. And then you're right, you get to the French Open. If, if Conchita Martinez won, it may have been a little fraud. Instead, you have Mary Pierce, which was a great story. And then four weeks later, you know, Venus Venus plays Serena and then wins Wimbledon with her dad jumping on the commentary booth, holding up a sign saying, I told you so. And we yeah. were, and you know, and the whole time you had Kornikova and you had, I mean, there was enough going on outside the majors as well. The the, the Federer the Feder Nadal, what became Strokes of Genius, that, that I worried about halfway through saying, I think I need <laughs> to impact my advance. We don't have a book here. I think with the, the publisher, I think was as much interested in the whole sort of fishbowl universe yeah, yeah. Well, the whole tiger king i keep going back to that i wish <laughs> you'd seen it we could uh exchange references what what do you looking back you mentioned cornicova a few times looking back on cornicova 20 years later what do you make of that whole phenomenon of just how she was covered i mean the whole machine that you know looking back on i mean i think espn page two that old website essentially invented just for cornicova you know, just talk about her more. Like she was the ultimate sort of sideshow in the sport, and just uh, nothing has come close to her since then. I don't think. And even people talk about you know Bouchard or Sharapova, but I, I don't think Kornikova was sort of reading about the amount of oxygen she took up at that time was uh, was pretty remarkable. I'm just curious what you make of it. Twenty years later, was it revolutionary? Was it embarrassing? Is it some all of the above? Or what? What do you make of Kornikova's as a phenomenon and as a player i guess also but mostly as a phenomenon no it's it's a great question because i i think within tennis the answer would be very different and i think you know she's she's obviously known if, if you ask casual fans what do they know well she was pretty and she never won anything yeah in tennis you say this is an extraordinarily talented player one of the reasons she didn't win anything is because she was so popular she couldn't play these rinky dink events i mean i think that was something that became clear to me that in some ways she was really a victim of her own success. She was a great tennis player. I mean, go, go back and look at some of her wins, go back and look at her doubles record. The only reason she didn't win a title is because she was so popular. The WTA wouldn't allow her to go play, you know, the equivalent of two fifties. Mm-hmm. And I, I think history will remember her quite well. I mean, I remember just covering tennis, like, like you got, how many players have we come across who were inspired by her, and I don't. I mean, Svetlana Kuznetsova would tell you, Kuznetsova had more influence on her than any other player. I think a lot of people benefited, including Maria. I think a lot of people benefited from some of her errors. I mean, I think a lot of people learned from her missteps. You know, there's a reason why Coco Goff is playing small events and uh, you know, winning in Linz. Yeah, they don't subject her to the pressure of never having won anything, and it's all hype. I think um, at at the time, I think you're right. I mean, Bouchard is as close as we can get, and it's nothing like that. I mean, I remember there was an event in San Diego, and these these frat boys who knew nothing about tennis. I mean, they didn't know how to keep score. They had no idea what they were watching, but they had all written on. Everyone got a letter, and it spelled out, you know, Animania or something like that on their chests. I mean, the the level of uh, of interest. Was, was really quite something. And I think it's it's a pity that she didn't win a stupid title because I think it yeah. really would have changed things. Yeah. Not, not within tennis, but I think sort of the, the common narrative. But I don't know. I mean, at some level, it it traced these broader feminist issues, right? I mean, it's, I mean essentially, she was the, the, the great feminist debate about sex workers, right? Is it 
right. the patriarchy or God bless her. This is capitalism and it's empowering to monetize your sex appeal. Um, yeah. I, I, well, what, what do you, I don't know. What do you, what do you got? I'm well, I was going to I was just going to say on the title thing, I think it's, I've said this before, I think maybe not on the show, but like it was, it's one of the most underrated important events of the last decade in tennis for her was Eugenie Bouchard winning Nuremberg, which is a complete non-event right, really right. in her career. And it was like, honestly not a top five accomplishment in her career for anyone who knows the sport, but it made that monkey get off her back about never winning a title. And that's still her right. only title, but you know, she made a Wimbledon final. She made two, you know, grand Slam semifinals before that, but it's just winning Nuremberg, this dinky, you know, and I've been to Nuremberg. It's lovely. It smells of pine. It's great. But the, uh, you know, week before the French Open, not a tough feel, but it gives her that sort of no longer Kornikova thing. And you're right about Coco Goff. You know, Coco Goff winning uh, Linz makes that already not the stigma. Like, she already has that trophy photo credibility. You know, and in the same way with, like, Serena. Like, Serena, the most celebrated she was during her whole maternity comeback was for winning Auckland, probably. That was her moment of, like, purest triumph, right. I guess, even though it does it pales in comparison to making four Grand Slam finals. So... You know, yeah, yeah I, I, I think mean, it's it's a it's a it's a sort of arbitrary metric that people use to pick on Kornikova. People were eager to sort of rip on Kornikova for sure. Yeah, and and I think that what you said, John, is right, which is that you know if you look back at the history of women's tennis, um, in especially obviously in the Open era, but like you know you have Chris Everett in like you know 70s and 80s being, I mean, she was on SNL. She was, you know, I mean, people really don't. Under the, the children don't understand how big of a deal Chris right. Everett was and how much she changed a lot of the perception of women's tennis, of the WTA, Girl Next Door, Pretty, all these sorts of things, um, and all that. And then, and in a lot of ways, like her sex appeal, her girl, that whole thing was marketed. And during that time, it was no one really batted an eye about it. It was just like, that's how you sell women's sport. That's how, you know, whatever. Then Kornikova comes along, and I think that's when, uh, at that time, right, is when we start reckoning with it and being like, wait, hold on. Like, you know, second wave or third wave feminism, whatever it is, of like, is this okay? And should you be using this as your marketing campaign? And you should you be uh, criticized? Should she be criticized for using her sex appeal when she's fully in control? I mean, mm -hmm. Anna was never seemed to be exploited. She, <laughs> she had agency 100%. Um, and then... You flash forward to now, and that continues to be a debate, I think, that happens, I think, when people talk about how the WTA is marketed, how players choose to market themselves. And I think that in a lot of ways, like if you take like right now, for example, like the WTA top 10, and you look at them and you see, oh my gosh, they're all so different. And some of them want nothing to do with it. Like that scene of um, that you were describing of, of Lindsay muttering under her breath. Uh, in in the boat down the Yara, all I could think was Ash Barty, like right, right. You know, like if Ash wins Oz, like that's gonna be Ash. Like she'd be like, fine, <laughs> like you know, and just hate it. Um, but Kenan loved it. But Kenan loved it, and you know, Jeannie wants to do all of those sorts of things. Like Carla does not. I mean, and it's okay. And but it's funny because you know, twenty years on, I don't know if people have reconciled the Kornikova problem, honestly. I feel like people still struggle with it. Oh, completely. And I think you, you'll still find, you know, you, you'll find veteran players tus tusking. You'll, you'll find other people who say, boy, you know, you, use, whatever, use whatever you have. Um, I, I didn't have much rapport at all with Kornikova during this book. 
I think she was very skeptical and she, she was ahead of the curve in terms of sort of media management. And, you know, you go call up Venus and she would tell you she was making her Halloween costume. I had no, that I did not have that kind of rapport with Kornikova, but I, you know, it's funny. I did. She's really retreated. You guys know this. I mean, she's yeah. really retreated from the scene. I mean, you never, she might play an event here and there and, and it's never in the U S and you know, she's, moved on from tennis and I, I think feels a little bit burned by it, but I did a piece for sports illustrated and like, I don't know, maybe it was like 2010 and a, she was awesome. And B she, I gave her every opportunity to sort of blame the system and blame the machine. And she basically said, you know, I cash the checks. It's on me. Hmm. And she really got it. And I think she, she admitted if there was something, yeah, I would, I would have done some things differently, but there was no model for this. I mean, you, you mentioned Chrissy and her sex appeal, but, you know, look, look at Kornikova's, um, you know, people can have, have fun with the Google machine, but, you know, look, look at, <laughs> shoot, I mean, honestly, like Sports Illustrated yeah. didn't have clean hands either. I mean, she, there right. was a Rolling Stone photo shoot. She was about 16 years old. I mean, there was a Sports Illustrated cover that I think in, in retrospect um, is, is probably one of those, you know, th things we all regret. There really wasn't much of, of a precedent. I mean, this, this, this was feminism like 8.0 compared to uh, what had previously <laughs> passed for using sex appeal. Yeah. And I, it, it's a pity to me that Kornikova is not a bigger part of the tennis firmament. I mean, you know, is, is she a Hall of Famer? Probably no, but she should have some sort of profile. And I think the sport really owes her a debt. Um, but she's just not, I, I don't think she's necessarily interested. And I, I don't know sort of where things stand. But I think when they tell the, his, when they tell the history of tennis, A, I think she's going to uh, be very underrated. I think she's going to come in for a lot of credit. And I, I think people are going to regret how she was characterized, you know, as, as, as a teenager who was, you know, she, she was so big, they basically wouldn't let her play a rinky dick event so she could get that stupid title. Yeah, no, I, I've tried reaching out to her a couple of times within the last, I think I wanted to do something on her like 20th anniversary of her Wimbledon run or something. When she made the semis when she was 16, which again is another great breakout feat that people sort of gloss right. over now. But she was, her agent was sort of basically saying, denying everything. And she's, you know, she's had a couple kids recently and just seems to be sort of settling into home life with her very long relationship now with Enrique Iglesias. So, I mean, that's a celebrity pairing that has had surprising uh, durability. That's one thing that's funny, though, just going off of the Iglesias thing, because reading the book, I just kind of kept laughing about how high profile these celebrity pairings were with these players. Like, you know, setting aside like Gure and Fedorov and Kornikova and whatever, but, you know, Roberto, Roberto Alomar. Roberto Alomar, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You know, being involved in, in, in the book. Uh, yeah, just all of the names. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of looking at the current landscape of the tour and it's like, yeah, like, we had Red when's Food. the last high... Yeah, exactly. I mean, is Red Food the last high profile pair? Like, like... Sporting, what was the action? dating pairing? What oh, like yeah. What, what about Sloney? Oh, Sloan. Sloan and Josie, yeah, for sure. And like Naomi and and Corday, yeah. It just it felt maybe because I was of that time as well. Like these, the names just felt so much bigger. <laughs> like you know, just the electricity, I suppose. <laughs> no, it, it it yeah right. No, it, I mean it's interesting too. At the time, I mean again, like I feel like I need to uh, timestamp everything pre-social media. But you also, I mean, it's really interesting to me, um, you, the, the fleeting celebrity. I mean, Red Foo's a good example from more recent times, but uh, yeah. so someone who seems like a really big star in uh, 
you know, in, in the year 2000, ne- never mind 2020, and f- you know, five years later, it's like, who is that again? But no, when I mean, it's cruel that way. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, again, this, this book was a, um, I, it was a learning experience. A lot, you, a lot of things I would probably do differently. Would you recommend, I'm just curious to somebody who's thought about this idea possibly for a book and having, I think this is really the only time you've done it this way, but would you recommend the sort of year on tour type format to somebody thinking about writing a book or is it, did you get lucky? Is it perilous? Is it good? Is it you know, convenient? Or how, how do you think of that format that you were, and you do a great job obviously of, you know, taking the Australia chapter to go into Lindsay and the French open chapter to go into Mary Pierce and you find the convenient tangents as they worked. But do you think it's a, because you do have to plan for it in advance. I'm just curious if you think it's a good way to go about writing a book or, or not as a structure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not the freshest approach, but I do think there's something just sort of fr- from a narrative standpoint with a, a beginning, a middle, and end. Yeah. I, I think it's effective. I mean, I think you, you guys sort of hit on it. You you set yourself up for, hey, the, the French Open, uh, the, the, never mind coronavirus, and uh, the, the, the French Open has yielded Al Costa against Juan Carlos Ferrero, and here I was trying to write about uh, Sampras Agassi or whatever. I mean, I, I think there's a certain danger that goes to it, but I also think it's sort of a tried-and-true sports book conceit, and I, I suppose um, in, in the sense that we, we all start fresh, and there's, uh, I mean, it does sort of trace the same arc of, of narrative. I would encourage uh someone I, I don't know whether it's tennis or anything i mean you know I'd, I'd sort of encourage someone to find um a more creative structure but this is sort of a, a tried and true method john qu- question for you is um on that a little bit but like we were talking earlier about kind of how access has changed and with the more professional professional nature of the tour and things like that and players and agents but and the machine but in terms of just because it's hard not to be struck by how open and and how free the the, the players and everyone is with their tongue um, in in the book. And I know that that's just not the case, obviously, and how they are they deal with the media today. So, f- from your perspective, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's changed? Is this purely a, a social media thing? Is it more than that? Is it that you know everybody wants to be cool and chill and a diplomat and an ambassador now and no one wants to be salty, like, publicly. I mean, because they're all salty privately. But, (laughs) I mean, what do you think it is? I mean, I think the first thing is just you're dealing with, overall, it was was a younger subset, right? I mean, Warnikova, the Williams sisters, they were all teenagers. Um, You know, Coco Goff is very very cool and I think a, a positive person, but she speaks more freely than Ash Barty. I mean, some of it is just, you know. True, true. You're you're young and a guy asks you a question, you're going to answer it. I mean, the very first time I, you know, I wasn't first, but you know, I I did a, a an interview with Venus Williams at the French Open. So bear in mind, first of all, middle of the tournament, you know, she wins her first match, and Venus Williams has half an hour to spend with me for this book, and she had a plastic pig nose that she wanted to wear because she thought it was cool. <laughs> I, I, I did half an hour in the middle of a major with Venus Williams while she wore a plastic pig mask and it didn't, it didn't even it didn't even seem weird at the time but i think it's just sheer a sheer function of age i mean again i think this social media has changed the risk reward of, of saying anything you know salty and clapping back and the distraction i mean i i think the risk reward ratio for a lot of these players was much different but again, I just think, you know, the, the Williams sisters, the first time they played Australia, they went and they flew coach because Oracine said the business class tickets were too expensive and they weren't there with 
handlers and agents and the WME contingent and trainers. I mean, it was just such a smaller ecosystem that I don't know if the players were more free or less free to speak freely. I think it just, you had so many, you, you, you just had fewer sort of layers of the membrane. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think again, I, I think it's a real credit to the WTA as a bit, you know, I mean, I think you see this with a lot of businesses, right? I mean, we used to ride skateboards in the middle of Microsoft. Well, you know what? When you're a publicly traded company and you have shareholders and you have yeah. expectations and you're trying to recruit, like, yeah, you're not going to ride a skateboard to work. I mean, it's sort of the, it's one of the trade-offs for growth and progress and, and professionalism. Yeah, that's true. I have seen the social network. <laughs> I saw I saw what happened. Exactly. <laughs> is, is there any, any part of this book that you, this book is very, uh, it's pretty concise. It's pretty, I mean, like there's a lot of little things in it that get touched upon that I think could be entirely different spinoff books. I mean, I, I was talking, you remember last year, I did a story, long story on Monique Veely, who gets mentioned maybe like three times in this book at different parts. And you did a Sports Illustrated for Women feature on, I guess, in 99. But was there anything in this book looking back that, now that you wish you could have spent more time on, whether it's, I don't know, Capriati or Dockich or even one of the more, you know, less of that sort of movement players like Arancha or Conchita who you would have liked to spend more time with? Or are you, are you happy with how it worked? Because it's tough writing a sort of an ensemble book. It's generally not like what agents or publishers tell you they want. They don't you should, you should want like a star. I think you managed to pull off the ensemble thing pretty well. That's a rambly question. But basically, is there anything you wish you could have... Uh, done more of in this book looking back um, no that's a good question i mean I, you know obviously you would have made 50 percent of it venus and serena if you knew what history was going to have in store that's a really interesting i mean sometimes it's fun you know kornikova lost at the i think it was the 2000 u.s open to this you know scrawny belgian who yeah. had no interest in uh who, who actually yeah. went into yeah. the press conference and said you know she she wants to do i i i'm paraphrasing here but it was basically like you know she wants tennis to be a stage. I want it to be a court. She wants to be a dramatist. I want to be an athlete. And that tart player's name was Justine Hennon. Um, so, you know, you, you could have played the futures market and, and found some players um, at a much younger age. I mean, I, I guess in retrospect, I wish, um, you know, I, I wish I'd perhaps done more with Monica Sellis, who I got on really well with and I think was in a place where she was ready to start processing what had happened to her. You know, you whatever you probably would do less on some of the players that maybe didn't pan out. But again, I mean, if you had told me twenty years ago, some some of the stuff I would have said, yeah, I, I could see that. You know, Lin- Lindsay would be completely cool and normal and have four kids and live in Orange County. All right, that sounds about right. If you <laughs> told me Venus and Serena would still be playing, yeah. Serena would have twenty three majors and you know Venus would would have seven, and here they were in their late thirties still at it. I would have you know. I would have I would have taken the under on that because Venus is kind of introduced in the book as there being retirement rumors about her in Miami that year. Like, oh, she's going to retire soon, and that she still has not retired <laughs> in twenty twenty is is an amusing thing to look back on. Go, yeah, that, uh, that, that's for sure. Go read the go. I, I always tell people to do this for fun. Just go read if you, if you have half an hour to kill, and and who among us doesn't have half an hour to kill these days? Go to the ASAP Sports website and read the transcripts from nineteen ninety nine Miami which include one by Richard Williams, where he says he's buying Rockefeller Center and enjoys <laughs> the salty snacks known as pretzels. But read, <laughs> read Venus and, uh, see? 
Um, read, read Venus and Serena, and they're talking about how they have so many other interests, and the tennis is is fun when they compete, but the rest of it's so boring, and they're trying to get better at Portuguese. <laughs> they basically paint themselves as sort of. I think Selena Roberts, um, my my longtime friend and colleague. She called them the Tennis Kelly girls because they were sort of like temp employees who came and went when they pleased. The notion that um, they would still be out here in 2020 is, is one of the more remarkable uh, sort of sports twists I could come up with. And kudos to you, though. You do have a mention in this book, which is about the 2000 season, of Sharapova is mentioned briefly in here. So you did see that coming. And actually, it's something that's in, in Michael Mushaw's book, which I think was in 91. He mentions Venus Williams even then. So it is impressive sometimes how people can see things down the pipeline. So applause to you, at least for getting yeah. Sharapova mentioned way and ahead of And also shout out, just to say, personally, I want the John Wertheim deep dive into Rosana de los Rios. Yeah. Because she got a lot of ink <laughs> in this sucker. And I was impressed. <laughs> that must I was like, wow, John's real, John's real into it. Got it. Sweet. No, I, I want to uh, know more. I th- you know, her. she had a daughter, Rosana del Rios. Yeah. Uh, Went and had playing. A, it was it was fascinating to me. I mean, she she went, she had a child, and then she you know, she was a great junior player, and then she she came back and had this two thousand second week French Open run. I first of all, I knew I was getting old when I saw her daughter being uh, referenced in WTA ranking. You know, her oh yeah, she's playing years. ITFs. Yeah, exactly. But you know that that that's an example of if I had had those pages back, and it was uh, Rosanna Delos Rios versus those. I could have those ten pages back on Venus <laughs> and Serena. I may have. No, but I, but I think, but I think you did. I think you really did do a good job of make, paying, getting a good sort of slice of the tour at a moment in time and showing a pretty complete picture of it. And, and you know, stuff even like Alexandra Stevenson, I think, was an important kind of person to be talking about at that time. You know, in two thousand, because she was, a, you know, even if she panned out into nothing, and is still talking about having a comeback. I think, you know, she's still somebody who uh, was a big part of the tour then. So I think you were authentic to the moment, if if nothing else, which is kind of all you can ask as a historian or you know documenting history as a first version in, in venus envy i am um, I, I i appreciate that again uh you, you we're doing this on skype and we're only on audio so you can't see uh me blushing but again this is uh i'm, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed by this whole conversation but <laughs> it, uh, I mean, it's not, honestly, that's why we wanted you on it um this this will not go down with uh john mcphee's levels of the game is indispensable tennis reading but um <laughs> No, I, you know, I, I, now that I'm talking about it and think, I mean, I, I do think it sort of, A, it, it hardened my affection for tennis. I mean, obviously there were a lot of relationships that I was able to, to make, but I also think it, it really sort of enhanced my appreciation for what players go through and whether it's Venus and Serena or whether it's players that are just grinding it out on a Tuesday night in Amelia Island. Um, I did get to see that you know, this, this, this is a real job and nothing is guaranteed. And these players are really good at what they do and work really hard. And you try to remember that when someone doesn't play up to their expectations or goes through a a losing streak, I I definitely walked away with more and not less appreciation, fondness, respect, whatever for, um, for the athletes themselves. Of course, the, the, the circus, the, the, the circus is always part of the appeal, but the, the athletes themselves, I really, um, walked away very impressed with. 
Yeah, and I think that that's a really, really good point in terms of, uh, again, just speaking about the access point. I wonder sometimes if agents and players knew that if, like, I'm, I obviously have the privilege of probably having pretty good access, probably better access mm-hmm. than most mm-hmm. tennis journalists. And because of that, week in, week out, and also just the trust that I'm able to build and stuff like that, the empathy is so real for all of them because I know what they're going through and because they tell me. But a lot of in a lot of ways now that everybody's walls are up, kind of, and the only interaction you get with players is at the press conference or if you're lucky, a five to ten minute, you know, one-on-one at a tournament or something like that. It's way easier, I think, for... Um, people who write about tennis, whether from the couch or parachute in, or even sometimes the weekly reporters, like to um, not be empathetic because they're not being told it. Like, you know, my boy, you know, like my boyfriend broke up with me and my parents are fighting or like whatever it is, you know? And it's almost like, Oh, if you guys would just like let us in, in a lot of ways, like what, (laughs) you know, like Christian, for example, doing the TikToks and stuff like that. Like, it's like, Oh, that's a human person. Exactly simple (laughs) um no i i mean the other thing that i found is that you get the players going and you show that you have an interest in what they do and you're not just going for you know a quick take the players are great it's it's all these forces around them that have again done this risk reward calculus what am i getting out of letting my players speak freely the the players are fantastic and even if you want to frame this in the most crass transactional commercial way I would argue it's better for the players to be who they are and speak openly than just sort of hit hit tennis balls and issue cliches. No, I mean, Christian is a great example. Yeah. Much more, whatever it is, affection, publicity, social media traffic, whatever your metric is. What's she done for herself in the last two weeks compared to you know, even reaching the middle weekend of the U.S. Open? You know, publicists and even parents just... Just let let the let the athlete go. I, th- yeah. I think um, I think everyone benefits. People are so risk averse now, especially agents, and it just and obviously like Curios is the extreme example of not being risk averse in a lot of ways. <laughs> but you see how fascinated people are with Curios, who's never been a top ten player. Exactly. You know, yeah, there is definitely a, a, a trade off there. I, I'm curious, just also from a writing perspective. So you obviously cover tennis, the weekly mailbag for decades now, and on <laughs> a tennis channel. But of your books, this is only one of two that you've done about tennis specifically and i'm curious if that's that might seem in congress from the outside i don't know is tennis tougher to write about other things you're just more interested in having you know being able to branch out from tennis or, or what makes tennis as a as a book subject compared to the other things you do what makes it tough or challenging or less less appealing maybe to you um yeah it's a good question i mean you know i i adore tennis i, I always say it's my guilty pleasure like I, I love tennis i'm so happy that i still sort of have a a a bit of real estate in the sport. You know, I, I suspect it 60 minutes in sports illustrated. If I, if I said I wasn't doing tennis anymore, it would not be met with a uh, tremendous disappointment. <laughs> I, you know, as far as the book goes, I think, I think tennis is a great sport to write about. I think a lot of it's just a function of market. You can write, you know, Andre Iguodala writes a best-selling book. You can be a good, not great NBA player. You can find a good, not great NFL story. And you might be able to get, a book contract out of it yeah. just because of, uh, you know, just size of market. Tennis is tough. I mean, it's hard to get a, a mainstream commercial book. You know, there's no, nobody's, um, 
you know, no, no one's we, we we all love Dominic Team, but Harper Collins is not bring, you know backing up the Brinks truck for the Dominic Team. I mean, I think a lot of it's just a function of of market. Yeah, but but I think you know, I mean, a, a lot of great books. I, I think we're all sort of trying to find alternative content in this uh, strange period with no sports, and I think a lot of people, self included, have done the. Here are some tennis books you want to read. It's remarkable how a sport of this scope and size has generated so much good writing. And I, th- I think tennis is a great sport to write about. I think it's just, it's it's a lot harder to... To sell that writing, yeah. Yeah, sell that writing, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, like, it, it you can just see it just based on just the number of tennis books and the scope that have basically dwindled over time, right? Like, the market back in, like, the 70s and 80s, there's, I mean... There are certain books I'm like, I can't believe this was published. Like, I have no idea who greenlit this. Like, you know, um, but tennis was that's that's the space. And that was the market that that tennis uh, offered to people that that our players, male and female, were genuine superstars, especially stateside. And then now, you know, it's 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 hard. It's hard to, to get those books obviously published. And, you know, it's even hard to just find what are the good books that have been published, you know, after 2010 that are tennis books? It's a very small short are, list. Uh, yeah, I mean, did David Foster Wallace compendiums? Right. But, but I, the other thing, I mean, I, I think a lot of this, too, is about just the publishing industry. I mean, sp- sports books in general are not what sports books were 25 years ago in terms of the market. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said. How, how many people, whether it's, David Foster Wallace or Louisa. I mean, you just sometimes you look at even the who's contributing the, the New York Times magazine tennis pieces. A lot of people and a lot of really talented writers are drawn to tennis and they don't have to be right. No, nobody's telling Jeffrey Dyer or no one. J.M. Ketsy. I mean, you sort of look at right. uh, you look at some of the yeah, Taffy Ackner. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and my takeaway to that is there's something here. From a literary standpoint, I mean, there's a, there's something special about this sport and the fact that it lends itself so well to good writing and good writers who may not even follow the sport more than casual fans want to be in there covering it. That tells me there's something here that tennis could probably capitalize on more generally. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I mean. I mean, that's kind of the mission statement of Racket magazine yeah. right, in terms right. of the types of stuff, you know, trying to source that sort of stuff and intentionally in a lot of ways get a lot of non-tennis quote-unquote writers to just write even tangentially about anything <laughs> that is related to tennis, which is great. Um, but you're right. It's it's a sport that, I don't know, I think it's because the rules are so simple. The game is actually quite simple, but, and it takes place in beautiful venues, so you can, I don't know, it, it just, it right. inspires, it, it inspires a type of writing that, that, you know, you get sometimes, I guess, people write about golf sometimes that way or the mental side. But there's, there is something about tennis that um, that draws the literati. And it's got its share of crazy. I, I mean, yeah. I, should, I should say also, we, we Absolutely. are discussing this, uh, the, the week The New Yorker has a fiction piece, mind you, fiction, <laughs> about match fixing at the challenger level. Again, uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't, I haven't, I, it, this is half-baked, it's not quite there, but I do think the the tennis marketing types and the, the tours and to some extent tennis channel they, they ought to people ought to be thinking about why this sport is so appealing to writers and what more broadly tennis can do to capitalize on that because i think from a from a storytelling perspective it is so rich i think you're right courtney i mean i think some of this is 
the nature of the sport. I think some is the rawness and it's it's men, it's women, it's international. It's sort of glamorous and yet amazingly not glamorous in some respects. I mean, I I, I love it and I love sort of being, being a part of it and thinking of it in terms of storytelling. I think there's something there that whether it's, you know, why hasn't there been a better tennis movie? Sort of a discussion we've had forever. Yeah. But I, I just think from if I were starting to market this sport tomorrow, I would think about why it is so many writers gravitate here when they don't have to. Very good point. Well, we appreciate you, John, for gravitating towards tennis for the 2000 WTA season and putting Venus Envy on our shelves forevermore. Best of wishes to you and to your work and everything else outside of work during this uh, crazy time. And thank you for making time for being here with us during it. Thanks. That was, that was a thoroughly enjoyable hour diversion from the uh, dystopian hellscape around us. So I, uh, I thank you for that. I cringe at hearing the title Venus Envy 20 years later. But it, was, <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure to reminisce with you guys. And um, I, I hope we see more more good tennis books going forward when we're uh, back uh, back out there and they're playing actual matches. Amen. Thank you, John. Thanks, Thanks John. Guys. Thanks. So thank you again to John Wertheim for coming on the show to talk about Venus Envy, our first NCR book club selection. Our next book club selection will be Hardcourts by John Feinstein, which is available on Amazon. Lots of used copies out there, and it's also an ebook, So you should be able to find it pretty easily. Libraries maybe will have it too if your library is still open during this crazy time we are living in. Thank you very much to those of you who contributed your reactions to Venus Envy as well, and thank you to all of our Patreon backers especially, especially our Slam Champ level backers, Liz Kinnell, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Chuang Nguyen, and Betty. And thank you also to our GOAT backer, J-O-D. If you want to follow, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We really appreciate all the support, especially during these very thin times in the tennis earning landscape. And also want to suggest that you follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. We'll be back with some episodes of some kind sometime in the near future. Bye, guys. East Coast, West Coast, oh boy. I've been watching you. Like a hawk in the sky that flies like you in my prey. Boy, I promise you, if we keep bumping heads, I know that one of these days we can hook it up while we talk on the phone. But see, I don't know if that's good. I've been holding back this secret from you. I probably shouldn't let you know if I.